Hello, and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that focuses on the lives and times of great historical figures that have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Maps and images for this and all episodes can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Please, if you have a moment, rate us on iTunes and leave a review. After spending last episode in Han, China, and Central Asia, in this episode we'll cross over to the other side of the Eurasian landmass, to Western Europe. At the beginning of the 5th century AD, a map of Europe was dominated by the Roman Empire, regardless of its actual status and life at the time. But by the end of the 5th century, after entrance stage east of the Huns, Vandals, Goths, Burgundians, Alamanni, and other assorted, mostly Germanic tribesmen, the map had changed quite a bit, including the disappearance of what we call the Roman Empire, although the version based in Constantinople was alive and well. Into this swirling chaos stepped Clovis, king of the Salian Franks, and founder of the Merovingian dynasty, of what we call somewhat inaccurately France. Really, he united a kingdom that eventually became the nucleus of Francia, the kingdom of the Franks. This is Season 2, Episode 7, Clovis, and this is The Almost Forgotten. middle of the 5th century AD, the Roman Empire was in full-on collapse, at least the western portion was. Their last great gasp may have been at the Battle of the Catalonian Plains in 451 AD, when Roman general Flavius Aetius defeated Attila the Hun, who was ravaging his way through northern Gaul. Aetius, who was the Roman Empire's magister militum, the supreme commander of Roman forces, and was probably Gothic himself, had help from Germanic allies. These allies certainly included Theodoric, king of the Visigoths, and likely also included the king of the Salian Franks, perhaps the semi-legendary Merovech. The Salian Franks were based in the region just north of Roman Gaul, so it would make sense that they were present on one side of the battle. It's also possible that some of their people were living in Roman Gaul with the permission of the Romans. Now, the next king of the Salian Franks, after the one that fought in this battle, Childeric, also allied with the Romans, at least whatever Romans remained. By the late 450s into the early 460s, southern Gaul had been taken by the Visigoths who had settled there. The Western Roman Empire remained, but mostly in Italy. Northern Gaul, though, was still part of Rome, at least technically. In fact, they were actually sort of ruled independently in what is called today the Kingdom of Soissons. It was an exclave. They didn't call themselves a kingdom, just a province of Rome that was geographically separated from the rest of the empire. Childeric, the Frank, helped defend it from Visigoth attacks encroaching from the south. When Childeric died in 481 AD, his son, whose name was pronounced something like Chlodowig in Frankish, was called Clodovecus in Latin, who was only 16 at the time, became king. In English, we call him Clovis, and if we write the word out and remove the letter C in front of it, it becomes pretty clear why that name evolved differently in French to the name Louis, the name of about 75 French kings. 
Clovis was born in the town of Tournai, in the Wallonia region of modern-day Belgium, around 465. This was his father's capital, the capital of the Salian Franks. So, who were the Salian Franks? For that matter, who were the Franks? The Franks were one of many Germanic peoples who had lived beyond the borders of the Roman Empire to the north. They may have originally been a confederation of smaller Teutonic tribes. At least that's what contemporary Roman authors believed. According to the new medieval Cambridge history, quote, by the beginning of the 4th century, some Franks had been resettled throughout northern Gaul inside the Roman Empire. In particular, by the middle of the century, the Salian Franks had settled in Toxandria, a region south of the mouths of the Rhine. In return, the Franks provided recruits and sometimes entire units that served in the Roman army throughout the Mediterranean world. Unquote. While some of the other Germanic people had adopted some of the culture of their Roman neighbors, in the parlance of the time, the Visigoths were partially civilized barbarians. The Franks had not. They did not wear armor or ride horses. At least not initially. For weapons, they used throwing spears, swords, and a weapon called the Francisca. This was a throwing axe, which was named after the Franks, and was sort of their national weapon, in a way that the Sarissa, the long pike, was the national weapon of the Macedonians. According to Procopius, they would throw these axes all at once with the intention of breaking the enemy's shields. Then they would charge in and engage with the now shieldless and potentially disordered enemy line. The Salian Franks, one of the major Frankish tribal divisions, eventually were given territory in what is today's Belgium, southern Netherlands, and northern France by the Romans. It was territory west of the Rhine River and north of the Somme. Further east and more inland were the Ripuarian Franks, who were concentrated around Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensium, shortened to Colonia Agrippina, or Colonia, later Frenchified to Cologne on the Rhine River. It was obviously a Roman city. They captured it in 461 AD. The Salian Franks and the Ripuarian Franks were not close politically by 481 AD when Clovis was crowned, although there certainly were some ties. To the southwest of this territory controlled by the two Frankish kingdoms, which would later be called Austrasia, was that Roman exclave, the Kingdom of Soissons, which controlled the cities of Paris, Rheims, and of course Soissons. South of that, the Visigoths held most of southern Gaul and the Iberian Peninsula. At this point, Soissons was more of a rump state than an exclave. Well, there are many dates that can be attested to the fall of the Roman Empire, 476 looms large. Odoacer, the king of the Ostrogoths, sacked the city and proclaimed himself king of Italy. Around this time, he had also conquered Dalmatia, taking away the last non-Gallic vestiges of the Western Roman Empire. The Vandals held the territory of the Roman province of Africa, around Carthage and modern-day Tunisia, along with Corsica, Sardinia, and the Balearic Islands. To their east lay the remnants of the Roman Empire, which governed Greece, the Balkans, Anatolia, Egypt, Cyrenaica, Syria, and the Levant, and would last for another thousand years in the form of the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire. Beyond that was the Sasanian Persian Empire, which stretched all the way to the Indus Valley, where the Gupta Empire sat. 
The Guptas ruled the Indus and Ganges river valleys and were approaching, but not yet at, their decline in power. In China, the period of unity following the Han and Jin dynasties had given way to what is known as the Northern and Southern Dynasties period. The Koguryo dynasty was at its height among the three kingdoms of Korea, and the pre-Khmer Funan were ruling in Indochina. The kingdom of Aksum held sway from Ethiopia through to the Arabian Peninsula, and the Ghanaian Empire was probably starting to hold sway in Western Africa. In the Americas, Teotihuacan exercised great influence in Mesoamerica, and the Maya were in what is now known as their Classical Period. Not much is known about Clovis's life before he became king at age 16. Unfortunately, not that much more is known about it afterwards. The historical record is somewhat lacking, although we know plenty of the results of his actions. Some speculate that he inherited, along with the kingship from his father, the leadership of the Roman province of Belgia Segunda. This territory was essentially where the Franks lived, and whether or not it was officially considered a subordinate kingdom under the Romans still is really not that relevant. What is relevant is that he probably, like his father, was considered a Roman ally. But by the 480s, the Romans in northern Gaul were really on their own. The Western Roman Empire had collapsed, and the province was ruled by a man named Siagrius. He was the son of a Roman general who had first been given authority over the region as it became disconnected geographically from the rest of the empire. Siagrius ruled under the pretense that he was simply a provincial governor. He refused to recognize Odoacer as his new ruler and even sent envoys to Constantinople in the hopes of gaining recognition. But the Eastern Romans instead recognized Odoacer, and Siagrius was really out on an island. The locals called him the King of the Romans, and the Kingdom of Soissons, as we now know it, was in a weakened state and no help was coming. The Franks' life with their former Roman neighbors to the south were pretty intertwined. And when Clovis became king, he probably knew he was one of the most powerful men in either of the two territories. Although, at this point, thinking of him as a king might be a bit of a misnomer. He was really just one of the more important Frankish chiefdoms, sometimes called a petty king. But he saw an opportunity and set about getting some of the other Frankish chieftains allied with his forces. One of them was Ragnachar, a relative of Clovis, and the king of Cambrai, a town on the Scheldt River. They began making incursions into the kingdom of Soissons shortly after Clovis had taken the throne. According to pretty much our only near-contemporary source, Gregory of Tours, who wrote the original history of the Franks, called, unsurprisingly, History of the Franks, and who seemed to take his writing style from the Book of Armaments. Quote, And Clovis came against him with Ragnachar, his kinsman, because he used to possess the kingdom and demanded that they make ready a battlefield. And Siagrius did not delay, nor was he afraid to resist. And so they fought against each other, and Siagrius, seeing his army crushed, turned his back and fled swiftly to King Alaric at Toulouse, unquote. Unfortunately, we don't know much else about the battle, just that it was a decisive victory for Clovis and the Franks, and that Siagrius had to flee, 
King Alaric at Toulouse, who he fled to, was the king of the Visigoths, and their capital, Toulouse, was in southern Gaul. Not all the Franks were united in the battle, though. Another Frankish king, Chararic, brought forces to the battle, but did not fight, intending to join forces with whoever appeared to be the winner. But it's not clear whether Chararic ever engaged on Clovis' side, or if he fled the field and sent some nice flowers and a note of congratulations later. Siagrius made his way down to Toulouse. While the Visigothic kingdom was large and stretched through most of the Iberian Peninsula, it may not have been particularly strong at the time. Their previous king, Euric, had recently died, and his son, Alaric II, had succeeded him. Alaric was probably a few years younger than Clovis at the time. With the young king still trying to ensure his internal power stayed unchecked, it makes sense that when Siagrius showed up, Alaric didn't give him asylum, at least not for long. At some point, either immediately after he showed up, or a few months or a few years later, Alaric sent him back to Clovis as a prisoner. Once Clovis felt he had consolidated the kingdom of Soissons into his own, he executed Siagrius. Clovis quickly took the towns north of the Seine, including Paris and Rouen. Over the next three years, he was able to capture the rest of the kingdom, which had its southern border on the Loire River. We have no records of Clovis fighting the Gallo-Romans after the Battle of Soissons, but the fact that he didn't immediately take cities like Nantes and Tours suggests there was some amount of conflict. As was to be the tradition for many rulers of the region to come, he wasn't able to extend his holdings into Armorica, or Brittany, which had already begun to be settled by Bretons from across the English Channel. Clovis, as we will see, was not the nicest of people we profiled on this show. But he was nothing if not a man of action. While we don't know a ton about his life, there is one detailed story that comes down about his personality. After the Battle of Soissons, his army began looting and pillaging the region, as armies do. They had sacked a church, and the bishop sent messengers asking for the return of a specific vase, Now, it's possible it had some importance because there were plenty of things they took, but they really wanted this jug back. So Clovis goes, All right, come back with me to Soissons, where we'll divide the spoils, and there I'll find it for you and give it back to you. So he stands in front of his entire army and asks for this one little vase in addition to his normal share of the spoils. Almost everyone in the army was like, Sure, king, go for it, except for one guy. According to Gregory of Tours, Quote, A foolish, envious, and excitable fellow lifted his battle axe and struck the vase and cried in a loud voice, You shall get nothing here except what the lot fairly bestows on you. At this, all were stupefied, but the king endured the insult with the gentleness of patience, and taking the vase, he handed it over to the messenger of the church, nursing the wound deep in his heart. And, at the end of the year, he ordered the whole army to come with their equipment of armor, to show the brightness of their arms on the field of march. And when he was reviewing them all carefully, he came to the man who struck the vase and said to him, No one has brought armor so carelessly kept as you, for neither your spear nor sword nor axe is in serviceable condition. And seizing his axe, he cast it to the earth. When the other had bent over to somewhat pick it up, the king raised his hand and drove his own axe into the man's head. This, said he, is what you did at Soissons to the vase, 
Within a few years after the Battle of Soissons, Clovis had extended Frankish territory beyond their disunited region known as Austrasia. The kingdom of Soissons was absorbed into the Frankish lands, and the region was called Neustria. And Clovis, if he wasn't the preeminent Frankish king before this point, certainly was now. While the kingdom of Soissons was destroyed, this wasn't a fight that ended in the destruction of everything in the kingdom. The Roman legions in the territory were eventually absorbed into Clovis's army. The people who lived there became Frankish subjects instead of Roman subjects or, I don't know, Soissonian subjects. Many wealthy Romans continued on as wealthy landovers, and even the barbarians from across the empire who had been resettled into Roman territory remained. Around 491 AD, after taking that territory, Clovis embarked on a brief and successful campaign to push a group of Thuringians out of eastern Gaul. We don't really know anything about this conflict other than the result. After incorporating this into his kingdom, his borders put him right up against the Burgundians to the south and maybe the Alamanni to the east. Although it's possible that the Ripuarian Franks were still in between there. At some point in this general time frame, Clovis married Clotilde, a princess from the kingdom of Burgundy, his neighbors to the southeast. She was born in the Roman city of Lugdunum, once the capital and most important Roman city in Gaul. It had declined in importance, and the Burgundians were settled there when they fled to the Roman Empire trying to escape the Huns. Clotilde was a Catholic, which was a big deal at the time because the Franks and Clovis were still pagan, and some of the neighboring kingdoms, notably the Visigoths, were Christian but not Catholic. They were Aryan Christians. The distinctions aren't terribly important for this story, and when I say Catholic, that's not even a really accurate name for the religion that had come to dominate Rome. What is important for us is that Clotilde tried to get Clovis to convert, but he wouldn't bite. She gave birth to their first child in 494, but he died not long after his baptism, something she insisted on giving him. Clovis obviously wasn't a big fan of this, and he blamed the child's death on the baptism and on Christianity. He was even more upset when they had another son the following year. She had him baptized, and he also became ill. But he recovered, so perhaps Clovis began to think maybe her religion was okay. And he was probably thinking of such things, not just for his own personal interest, but because while a big portion of his kingdom was made up of pagan Franks, another big portion of the kingdom and the army were Gallo-Romans, who were Catholic. As 496 came, Clovis was doing well. He was about 30 years old and had been king of the Salian Franks for half his life. He had greatly expanded his own territory through conquest and now was married with a son, a potential heir. Despite these successes, the Franks weren't completely united under him. They were still a collection of kings, and the division between the Salian Franks in the west and the Ripuarian Franks in the east still existed. A man named Sigobert was king of the Ripuarian group, and they faced invasion from the Alamanni, another German tribal confederation. The Alamanni were to the east and south in the upper Rhine Valley, and their territories included the city of Strasbourg. Once again, we don't have a whole ton of details, but another story comes out of this conflict. Clovis may have initially asked to be the overall leader of the Frankish forces in exchange for responding to help out his fellow Franks, 
or Sigebert may have been defeated in a few battles already, and Clovis was leading a relief force of Frankish troops. Either way, Clovis led the forces at the Battle of Tolbiac, which was a fortress along the border south of Cologne. The Franks were suffering heavy losses, but the tide turned and Clovis was victorious. According to a Merovingian military organization by Bernard Backrack, quote, Clovis seems to have undergone a religious experience. The Alamans were treating Clovis's forces roughly, and he asked the Christian god for help, promising in effect that if his enemy were defeated, he would become a Christian, unquote. He won the battle, and whether or not this famous story is true or just legend, around this time he did convert. Maybe it was more plausible that in order to keep the Gallo-Romans under him from switching sides and joining with the Alamanni, who might well restore their independence, he promised to convert. What we do know is the battle was a big moment in Western history. Not only did Clovis win a decisive battle, he essentially subjugated the Alamanni, extending his territory into Swabia and turning his kingdom into a Christian one, but, unlike his Christian neighbors, not one that subscribed to Arianism. His ally, Sigebert, seems to have been wounded in the campaign, and he is known today as Sigebert the Lame. There is some argument as to whether this battle occurred in 496, the traditional dating, or about a decade later, as some modern scholars now believe. The 496 date in the highly biased but really only contemporary account written by Gregory of Tours does make sense. Not that the whole story falls apart if this didn't happen until 506, but it does mess up the order of the story, so rather than waffling back and forth, I'm just going to go with the traditional dating. One reason Clovis was hesitant to convert to Christianity was he was worried he'd lose some of his Frankish warriors. But whether it was a sign from above, like Constantine at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, a deal with his Gallo-Roman generals, or love of his wife, he really did convert. Not to say he became a devout religious man, but he went ahead and got baptized. Before the end of the 5th century, some say 496 AD, some say 498 or 499, Clovis was baptized in the city of Rem by the bishop there, Remigius. Remigius was, as most of the church leaders in the region, part of the upper echelon of Gallo-Roman society. His approval was strategically important. Clovis's power base certainly now included strong support from the former Roman citizens. But it wasn't really one. It was, however, the basis for future coronations of French monarchs. Their coronations included an anointment ceremony, which was a direct reference to Clovis's baptism. France actually marked 1996 as the 1500th anniversary of the founding act of France, although not without significant controversy, both because of the date chosen and the man that they were celebrating. Of course, Clovis's fears of alienating his pagan followers were not unfounded. Of his 6,000 Frankish soldiers, about half of them left to follow Ragnachar. Now, as Ragnachar helped Clovis take Soissons, it's not like they were enemies. At least not yet. Think of it like this. The Frankish kingdom, Francia, was dominated by Clovis, but he wasn't the official king of it all. He had to convince the other petty Frankish kings, such as Ragnachar, to join him when he wanted to go off and fight someone in order to use their troops. But as the most powerful of these kings, 
it would have probably taken a united front by all of the other kings to stop him, and that wasn't going to happen. The next place Clovis turned his attention to was the neighboring kingdom of the Burgundians, or the kingdom of Burgundy. It's where his wife Clotilda was from, and it was located to the south and included Lugdunum, the modern city of Lyon, where she was born, as well as Lake Geneva and the regions of Savoy, and, oh, hey, look at that, Burgundy. Who'd have thunk it? The Burgundian king, Gundabad, who had either sent Clotilda to Clovis as a traditional diplomatic marriage alliance type thing, or had kicked her out of the kingdom after killing her father, was involved in a civil war with his brother. Gundabad's brother, Godigisel, was either another Burgundian king, and they shared the title in some way, or he was just the king's brother. Sources don't agree. What we do know is that they were fighting, and Godigisel, whose name also happens to be a way to recommend a mobile phone to someone in the Caribbean, turned to Clovis to ask for assistance. He said if Clovis helped him kill his brother, he'd happily pay annual tribute. It was around the year 500. Clovis accepted the offer and marched down to help out. Gundabad saw that there was a Frankish army bearing down on him and asked Godigisel to come to his aid, not realizing his brother was the reason there was a Frankish army bearing down on him. So all three brought armies to the same point to meet in battle in the Valley of Dale under Erebor, the Lonely Mountain. Sorry, misread that. They met at the town of Dijon. Gundabad was surprised when his brother attacked him alongside Clovis, and he was defeated, although he was able to flee to Avignon. Gundabad rightfully feared for his life, as Clovis chased him to Avignon while Godigisel went to the former Roman provincial capital of Vienne and celebrated a triumph. One of Gundabad's advisors, or at least a Gallo-Roman aristocrat named Aridius, who lived in Burgundy and remained loyal, offered to help by pretending to defect and convincing Clovis to spare him. Aridius proclaimed himself Clovis's humble servant and asked for his protection. When Clovis besieged Avignon, Aridius came to him and said, according to Gregory of Tours, quote, Why do you keep your army here when your enemy sits in a very strong place? If you ravage the fields, lay waste to the meadows, cut down the vineyards, lay low the olive yards, and destroy all the produce of the country, you do not, however, succeed in doing him any harm. Send an embassy, rather, and impose tribute to be paid to you every year, so that the country may be safe and you may rule forever over a tributary. And if he refuses, then do whatever pleases you." In other words, he was trying to convince Clovis that Gundabad was in an extremely defensible position and couldn't be starved out. And it worked. Gundabad and Clovis agreed on an annual tribute, and the Franks marched back north to their territory. The animosity between Clovis and Gundabad didn't seem to last very long. In 507, Clovis marched out from Paris to attack the Visigoths, and he got the Burgundians to join him as allies. This may have been done mostly as protection in case they decided to attack his territory while he was on the march, but it is possible they added significantly to his forces as well. The Franks met the Visigoths at what is known as the Battle of Voulay, which we actually do know a bit about. It seemed that Clovis's effective use of combined arms, missile and melee forces, helped him get the victory. According to the book Merovingian Military Organization, quote, Though Clovis's advance south was slowed somewhat by the rain-swollen Vienne River, his forces reached the Poitiers area 
and engaged with the Visigoths at Voulay, a plain to the south of the city on the Roman road to Nantes. Clovis's archers and spear throwers, apparently deployed at the rear of his formation, showering the Goths with missiles from a distance. While this barrage battered the enemy, other elements of Clovis's forces advanced and engaged the Goths in hand-to-hand combat. Clovis is alleged to have killed Alaric, the Visigothic king, in single combat, unquote. Clovis didn't come through unscathed, though, and was attacked by a couple of Visigoths wielding spears. His horse's speed and his armor were apparently all that saved him. The Goths were routed and fled the field. It was a complete victory for the Franks. According to Sir Charles Oman in his book The Dark Ages, quote, so crushed were the Visigoths by the disaster that Clovis was able to overrun all the provinces between the Loire and the Garonne without striking another blow. He entered Bordeaux in triumph and there spent the winter, unquote. He had taken most of the old Roman province of Gallia Aquitania, extending his kingdom past the Loire River down to Bordeaux, which sits on the Garonne River. This was actually the original territory of the Visigothic kingdom in Western Europe, which was given to them by the Romans after the sack of Rome by Alaric I. But Clovis was still missing the big prize, their capital, to lose. After taking the city of Bordeaux and then resting up over the winter of 507-508, to he continued his conquest. He was able to grab Toulouse in 508, and with it, the treasures of the Visigothic capital. This probably included items that had been looted in their 410 sack of Rome. There was not, however, a big battle recorded like that of Boulay. Together with the Burgundian advance from the east, they pushed the Visigoths almost completely out of Gaul. Clovis rolled over much of the region, but it wasn't all sunshine, roses, and slaughtering of Visigoths. Theodoric, the king of the Ostrogoths, intervened and ended up serving as a regent for Alaric's young son, who also happened to be his grandson, as Alaric had married Theodoric's daughter. The Ostrogoths retook some fortresses, including Narbonne and Carcassonne. These towns were in a region called Septimania, roughly corresponding with the later region of Languedoc, the western portion of the Mediterranean coast of France. That stayed with the Visigoths, but it was the northernmost territory for them now. After Clovis, they were mostly left with what is now Spain. The Frankish kingdom, on the other hand, stretched from its original territory in what is now northern France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, down through the kingdom of Soissons all the way to the Pyrenees in the Atlantic. It was basically modern France, plus a few pieces to the north, minus Brittany and the southeast. Clovis had become more than just another Germanic tribal leader causing trouble in Europe. He controlled most of Gaul, and the Roman Empire took notice. That is the Roman Empire that was left, the one based in Constantinople. At this point, the city of Rome, as well as the rest of Italy, Dalmatia, and the northwest Balkans, and some of southeastern Gaul, was all part of the Ostrogothic kingdom, under Theodoric. Theodoric's relationships with the Byzantines had become strained, as did his relationship with Clovis. So the Eastern Roman Empire, Anastasius, tried to cultivate a friendship with Clovis in order to help defend himself against Theodoric. In 508, Anastasius named Clovis as a consul, and yeah, it's kind of crazy to think that there was still a Roman Empire using that title in some way or another. It was probably honorific more than anything else, meant to solidify friendship. 
But it also gave the Frankish king more legitimacy, especially compared to the other Frankish kings. This made his victory over the Visigoths at Voulay incredibly important for Clovis and the future of the Frankish kingdom. According to historian Ralph Matheson, quote, As a result of Voulay, Clovis did more than merely defeat his Visigothic rival Alaric II. He also put himself on the Byzantine radar and was acknowledged not only as a barbarian chiefdom worthy of receiving Roman honors, but also as a Byzantine client king. That status, coupled with the religious unity that he also shared with the Byzantine emperor, gave him a political status that placed him on a whole different playing field from the other Frankish petty kings, and must have been a prime factor in the ease with which the other Frankish peoples accommodated themselves to his rule, Speaking of the other Frankish kings, Clovis, despite controlling all of this territory, didn't yet have dominion over all of the Franks and he decided he ought to fix that. First, though, he took care of a few things to solidify his territory before consolidating everybody else's. He went to Paris and established it as his new capital over Soissons. This was sort of in the middle of his new kingdom, in between his Gallo-Roman and Frankish regions, rather than deep in Francia like Tournai was. It was around this time, maybe not long after his victory over the Visigoths, that he published the Salic or Salian Law. This was an attempt to record all of the laws that had been orally passed down among Frankish tribal elders into written form. It was compiled in the years leading up to its publication and was probably done in part to help legitimize Clovis's reign. It was also done around the same time that the Visigoths and Burgundians were doing the same thing, but it was the least similar of the three to the Roman laws that it was replacing for the citizens of its territory. But the remaining Roman administrators from the kingdom of Soissons probably helped write and build the laws. The Salic laws were mostly a list of fines that people would have to pay for various crimes, and there were inheritance laws as well that became points of interest down the road. But what was really important about the law other than its insights into early Germanic legal attitudes and languages, was that the Salic laws were still in use 300 years later when Charlemagne updated them. And because of this, they were an influence on much of Western Europe and Western European legal systems. After consolidating old Frankish laws, Clovis went about consolidating the Frankish kingdom. And, now try not to be surprised when I say this knowing what you know about Clovis, it wasn't through peaceful negotiation. First, he looked east to his old ally Sigebert the Lame, who had become lame fighting on Clovis's side at the Battle of Tobiac against the Alamanni. Clovis sent a message to Sigebert's son, Clodoric, saying he'd support Clodoric's rightful place on the throne of the Ripuarian Franks if something, you know, unfortunate were to happen to Sigebert. Today, rather than being called Clodoric of Strasbourg, he's called Clodoric the Parricide because he took Clovis's hint and killed his father, Sigebert. He then asked Clovis to send troops to claim whatever treasures he wanted as payment. Clovis, being Clovis, sent a few men who, as Clodoric was displaying his payment of a chest of gold to them, killed him. Clovis then made his way to Cologne and spoke to the people there. He claimed that Clodoric acted on his own simply because he thought Clovis would be okay with it, and then someone, who knows who, murdered Clodoric, but of course he had nothing to do with it. Quote, 
For I cannot shed the blood of my own kinsmen, which is a crime to do. But since this has happened, I give you my advice, if it seems acceptable. Turn to me, that you may be under my protection, unquote. This from the account of Gregory of Tours. The people acclaimed him king, and he now controlled most of the Middle Rhine region. Then he turned his attention to another petty Frankish king, Chararic. Chararic, you may recall, showed up for the battle to take Soissons, but Chararic didn't fight, and Clovis at some point captured him and his son and sent them off to become monks. Eventually, he had them killed and officially took their kingdom as well. Next, he went after his cousin Ragnachar, king of the city of Cambrai, who had helped him in his battle in Soissons. Gregory of Tours describes Ragnachar as a particularly vile man who barely showed mercy to his own relatives, which sounds like he could have been describing Clovis too, but that's besides the point. He led his army to fight his cousin Ragnachar, whose own men were dissatisfied with the greed of their master. So Clovis gave them gold armbands and other sorts of cool things that the Franks loved in order to get them on his side. When the armies met, Ragnachar was defeated. Perhaps his troops wouldn't even fight, it's not recorded. And before he could run away, his own men captured him and handed him over to Clovis. Clovis berated him for running away and shaming the family by not dying in battle, then gave him the old axe to the head before doing the same to his brother. Ragnachar's followers, meanwhile, began to realize that the gold they had been given was fake. They were either brave or dumb enough to raise this point with Clovis, and he said to them, quote, Rightly does he receive this kind of gold, who of his own will brings his own master to death, unquote. And he went on to inform them that they should be grateful he wouldn't kill them for betraying their master. Of course, the men begged for mercy, saying their lives were more than enough reward, and they were okay with, no, happy to get the fake gold bands because they learned a valuable lesson. What a guy, this Clovis. At this point, it's probably safe to assume that Austrasia, Neustria, and Swabia were all united under Clovis's single rule. Gregory of Tours wrote that after all of this, he lamented that none of his relatives were left alive, and Clovis was sad. Except Gregory of Tours also wrote that Clovis was just doing this to smoke out any other relatives and potential rivals so that he could introduce their skulls to his axe. After consolidating the various Frankish petty kingdoms and conquering most of Gaul, Clovis returned to his capital in Paris and finally died in 511 AD. He had guaranteed his sons would inherit the kingdom, but as would become the norm for quite some time in the region, they divided his territory and ruled as allies who often tried to murder each other. Despite the rivalries and the inefficiencies of inheritance that remained a hallmark of the Franks, Clovis's dynasty, the Merovingians, soon took the kingdom of the Burgundians and continued to spread the borders of the Frankish kingdom. Clovis himself was buried in Paris at the Abbey of St. Genevieve, a monastery that he and Clotilda were supposed to have founded a little after 500 AD. The abbey was abandoned during the French Revolution, and much of it was destroyed soon after that, although the tower was kept and is called Le Tour Clovis. The site now houses a French preparatory school, and if you were to stand on the intersection northwest of the school, you'd see the tower. You could then do a maybe 90 or 100 degree turn to your right, and you would be looking right at the entrance to the magnificent Pantheon building, which is the mausoleum to great heroes of France, 
including Voltaire and Rousseau. This intersection happens to be, not at all coincidentally, the corner of Rue Clovis and Rue Clotilde. Clovis is no longer buried in either of these spots, though, and he's not in Les Invalides, the resting place of many of France's military heroes. Instead, his body was moved to the Basilica of St. Denis, a church built by his great-great-grandson, Dagobert I, where almost every French monarch until the French Revolution was buried. After Dagobert, the Frankish kingdom slipped into de facto rule by the mayors of the palace, the major domo, a sort of prime minister. Finally, one of these men, Pepin the Short, father of Charlemagne, proclaimed himself king in 751. The kingdom Clovis started eventually grew to control much of Western Europe, but his dynasty, the Merovingians, eventually lost real power to the Carolingians, the dynasty of Charlemagne. Ironically, a Frankish noble named Munderic claimed to be the son of Cloderic the Parricide, the Frankish king that Clovis convinced to murder his father. Munderic's grandson was a man named Bodigisel, and according to some genealogies, Bodigisel was the great-great-great-grandfather of Charles Martel. Charles Martel was Charlemagne's grandfather, which, of course, makes Charles Martel the father of Pepin the Short. Now, there is certainly some doubt that the genealogy is correct, but if it is, Clovis's Merovingian dynasty was overthrown by the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Cloderic, the man who Clovis got to commit parricide and then had killed in an attempt to solidify the Frankish kingdom under the Merovingians. Whether that irony is true or not, the kingdom that Clovis started eventually grew into the dominant power in Western Europe. Unlike some other conquerors, we don't confuse Clovis with some enlightened warrior spreading truth and justice to more and more lands. His tactics could be brutal. His reign was an expansion of his people's power, followed by a consolidation of his own. From it sprang Charlemagne's empire, which means the Holy Roman Empire owed something to Clovis, and so does France, which, as we see, might consider Clovis its grandfather, if not its father. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't done so yet, please leave a review on iTunes. It would be much appreciated and would help spread the word of the show. Next week, we move ahead 500 years to the Middle East and a country who found its most competent and successful ruler as not a conquering king, but an intelligent and successful queen at a time and a place when many women held no authority at all. Thanks again for listening.